listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. I love to worship with you. I love to together proclaim the gospel in song. I love to affirm biblical truth. And I hope and pray that uh, you know and personally understand the freedom that is ours in Christ as we just sang. Uh, And if you do not... Maybe you're a person here this morning, you'd say, I, I'm longing for that. I'm, I'm searching for that freedom that we just sang about. I, I don't have that uh, in my life. Uh, it's our prayer, it's our heart that you would come to know uh, the freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word this morning, I'd like for you to join me in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we will be in just a few moments. You might also turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. Well, I know uh, many, especially with young kids, uh, as your conscience allows, uh, you're looking forward to this evening and uh, all that that means for October the 31st, Uh, but we're going to pause this morning and we're going to look at the spiritual significance, uh, the historical significance of this day, 504 years ago now. Reformation Sunday. It commemorates one of the most important days in church history. On October the 31st, 1517, a guy by the name of Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, not to be confused with Reese's um, 95 theses, or statements of faith on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, sparking Uh, what we know historically as the Protestant Reformation. Now, who is this guy, Martin Luther? Uh, For some of you who grew up in the Lutheran church, uh, that name is familiar, okay? And uh, you should uh, have a firm grasp on uh, this this monk um, who was born in 1483. He died in 1546. Martin Luther was a preacher. He was a theologian. He was an author. He was a, a professor. He was a developer of liturgies or uh, worship services, we would say. He was a Bible translator. He was also a hymn writer. Uh, he wrote some 37 hymns. My personal favorite is A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, a bulwark never failing, right? He is best known to us as a reformer. But what you need to know is before he was a reformer, he was a monk. He was a monk. In 1505, at the age of 22, Luther joined an Augustinian monastery uh, where he pursued the monastic life, a life of solitude, a life of prayer, a life of work, and complete devotion to God and the work of God. Two years later, in 1507, he was ordained a priest. Then in 1510, at the age of 27, Luther made a trip to Rome uh, for his monastic order. That deeply affected him. Uh, Rome was the center of the Christian world. uh, And so uh, Luther went believing that this particular trip was going to be the spiritual highlight of his life. And uh, certainly it was transformative in many ways. Uh, He was greatly disappointed when he found the city to be corrupt and the religious lives of the people dominated by uh, superstition in many ways. He was shocked at how careless and how lacking uh, was the devotion uh, even among the priests. Uh, Drunkenness, immorality were commonplace even uh, among the clergy. Well, Luther had entered the monastery initially to find a sense of peace. 
but he only found further frustration and, and disillusionment. And he was finding increasing dissatisfaction with many teachings of the church and the, spoor, the poor spiritual condition that it was in, but he had no better substitute. And so he uh, was, in many ways, he was in anguish over these things. Uh, his supervisor at the monastery was uh, Johann von Stoffitz, and he counseled Luther in this uh, disillusioned state that he found himself in, this angst. He encouraged Luther, strangely enough, to find comfort in the scriptures, which Luther did. And Luther was particularly impressed with the Psalms, uh, with the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the, to the Romans, and Paul's letter to the Galatians. But Martin Luther was especially troubled by what he saw as a contradiction in Romans chapter 1 particularly. Uh, and so if you're not familiar with the context of Romans chapter 1 there, I want to actually back up into verse number 16. It's a verse that you are probably more familiar with. It's where the Apostle Paul writes, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for, for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he went on to write this in verse 17, which is where Luther found what he saw was uh, kind of a, a, a contradiction. In verse 17 it says, For in it, meaning the gospel that Paul said he was not ashamed of, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now why would Luther find that contradictory? What troubled Luther was the phrase, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. He could not reconcile this concept of righteousness, which he saw as only the idea of God's perfection and, and his judgment, with the word gospel or the concept of good news. And so Luther said it this way, how could the revelation or the making known of God's righteousness, his perfection, which forces humans to see how unworthy they are when set against the perfections of divine holiness, how could that ever constitute a gospel message of good news? In other words, if God has set the bar so high, the standard being his perfection, and we all, because we are human, fall short... Why try? How can I ever be worthy of God? How is something so unattainable, how is that possibly good news? If I can never measure up, what is the point? So what did Luther discover? Well, he discovered that the gospel really is good news, not because it lowers the bar, not because it makes God out to be less than what he is, a perfect sovereign God, or that it somehow overlooks our sinful condition. No, the gospel is good news because it means that Jesus has met the divine standard and in him, by faith, we are lifted over the bar. We are made righteous in Christ Jesus through faith in him. And this right standing with God is a gift. Is a gift. It can't be achieved. It can only be received. Salvation is not based upon what you or I do, but what God has done. And this is fundamentally what sets biblical Christianity, I'm not talking about Baptists necessarily, I'm talking about biblical Christianity from the other religions of the world, whatever they may be. The other religions of the world will fundamentally tell us that somehow, some way, we have to earn our salvation. It's about doing 
But biblical Christianity would tell us, God's word would tell us, that the work is done. It is finished. It's quite literally what Christ said from the cross. Tetelestai. It is finished. The work is done. God made him. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians to the the church at Corinth. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We call that the great exchange of the gospel. And if I had to boil down the gospel to four words, I would simply say it this way. It is Christ in my place. We just sang about it. It's Christ in my place. The gospel comes to us and does the impossible. It lifts us up so that in him we do become the righteousness of God. And Luther discovered that righteousness is not something that is achieved, but something that is received by faith and lived out by faith. And that is why the good news is good. So the real turning point for Luther, Luther never set out fundamentally to reform the Catholic Church. Luther's, the turning point for him, or the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, was when he encountered the glaring practice of selling indulgences. Indulgences were associated with the sacrament of penance. And so after a person had repented of a sin and confessed that sin, they were absolved by the priest. But that was not the end of the matter. There's a historian by the name of Earl Carnes who describes it this way. It was thought that the guilt of sin and eternal punishment of sin or for sin were forgiven by God, but that there was a temporal satisfaction that the repentant sinner must fulfill either in this life or purgatory. So the indulgence was fundamentally a a, a document. Think of it like being a certificate that could be bought for a sum of money, and that would free a person from the temporal penalty of sin. It was believed that, that Christ and the saints had achieved so much merit during their earthly lives that the excess merit, that, that their, their excess righteousness, we might say, was laid up in a heavenly bank of sorts or a heavenly treasury of merit on which the Pope could draw on behalf of the, of the living faithful. So Luther witnessed this practice in Rome. Uh, But after uh, indulgences began to be sold in Wittenberg, particularly, mainly to fund the half-constructed St. Peter's Basilica, Luther felt that he could no longer keep his views private. He was was torn with all of this. I mean, he was just in anguish. And if you've ever done much study or you watched any uh, like documentaries that have been done on the life of Luther, you know that for much of his life, he was a really troubled individual. He was struggling. He was in mental anguish and spiritual anguish even over a lot of these things. And so it was in that context that he posted his 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg. Now, this was not an entirely uncommon thing. It wasn't so much the act of nailing the theses on the door that was you know, all that big of a deal. That was a fairly common thing because in that day, uh, the, the doors would have been used in many ways like a, a bulletin board in our day. So that wasn't the thing that made it so significant. (laughs) The statements that he nailed to the church door there at Wittenberg, they set forth his position on Scripture and his objection to certain practices and doctrines of the church. But it was this matter of indulgences that really kind of pushed him in that direction. And so think of it like this. It would be like one of you coming to to myself or to one of our pastors and saying, Hey, I've, I've sinned this last week. And so I would like to buy complete and full forgiveness. And we're like, okay, so if you write a check 
for $200 to the church, I, I, can, I can make that possible for you. Um, that's kind of what was happening here. So the five solas that we're going to be unpacking over the next five weeks, Lord willing, are a way of summarizing really what the reformers taught in the 15th and 16th centuries. And when we talk about the five solas, we're using the Latin word sola, meaning only or alone. Now these five solas were actually never written down together in exactly that form at the time of the Reformation. This is not what Luther nailed to the, to the, to the door in Wittenberg, was the five solas. Uh, no, the complete collection of five solas as we know them today uh, were, were assembled much later, uh, thanks to several different writers. But they do give us a very accurate summary of what the Reformers were teaching and preaching and show how radically different it was uh, from the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. So let's first unpack these in kind of a, a fly-by view, or a sports center view of the, the five solas as we introduce this series of messages. The first one that we're going to spend some time looking at today is sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the highest authority. Not some mixture of scripture and tradition and church teaching and Pastor Mike's opinions and your opinions and all that. It's sola scriptura. That doesn't mean that there aren't important things to be learned from tradition or other sources. Certainly, it just means that if you put them together in the boxing ring, so to speak, only one holds the knockout blow. Only one remains standing at the end. Nothing can ever be allowed to override or overcome or overthrow what God has said in his word, period, full stop. It's why one of our identifying statements here as a local body of believers is that we are striving to be biblically based. It establishes us for us everything that we need in matters of life and practice. It is the word of God. That's sola Scriptura. The second one is sola gratia. Sola gratia, meaning grace alone. Salvation is by grace alone, meaning the whole thing is a gift from God, not just a part of it. We can't earn our salvation. Salvation is grace, an undeserved gift freely given by God. Now, we've all been to birthday parties, right, at one time or another? And you've probably brought a gift to a birthday party, or if you were the one being celebrated, you've received gifts. Well, how weird would it be for someone who brought you a gift to go, hey, by the way, that's going to cost you 25 bucks, okay? I'll get that taken care of at the end of the party. You'd be like, wait, what? Like, I, I, I owe you for this? That doesn't make any sense, right? Well, that, it's the same way with salvation. It is a gift. In fact, Scripture makes it clear that God will not be a debtor to anyone. And so if there was a way for us to like take some of Jesus and some of our best efforts and kind of put that all together, which we've described many times as what? As a polluted gospel. Anything that includes Jesus plus something else is fundamentally a polluted gospel. So it's Jesus plus Mike's best efforts, uh, Jesus plus Mike kind of cleaning up his life and doing better every day, all that kind of... If that were the case, then God would somehow owe me something. And again, that's why we say, there's not going to be anybody in eternity in heaven saying, you know what, I pretty much deserve this because I was a pretty amazing guy <laughs> or I was better than most or anything like that. That's not the way it works. It's sola gratia, grace alone. The third sola is sola fide, meaning faith alone. 
Faith alone. We receive the gift of salvation by faith alone. Simply by trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Simply by taking God at his word. And it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8, For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. So if you, if you feel even for a moment that you can somehow in and of yourself boast in your salvation... You don't get it. You don't understand salvation from a biblical perspective. It's sola fide. We receive this gift by faith alone, simply by trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And that's the fourth sola, Christus solus Christus, meaning Christ alone. Salvation is and can only be by Jesus Christ Alone, We don't get saved by anything we do or a mixture of things we do plus Christ. That's because we are, as it says in Scripture, dead in our trespasses, dead in our sin, dead in our transgressions. So here's the key truth you need to understand. Christ did not come and die to make good people better. He came and died on the cross to make dead people alive. Dead people alive. Now, uh, thankfully, I've not had to be around too many dead people uh, in the course of pastoral ministry. Obviously, you know, you're there with a the grieving family at the funeral home, whatever the case may be. I have yet, in my 55 years of life, seen one of those people get up out of the casket. Thank the Lord. Thank, thank, thank the Lord. That's not something I've ever experienced because dead people don't do that, right? They can't do anything for themselves. No, they are dead. And that's the way that the, the scriptures describe us uh, apart from salvation in Christ. We are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. And so it's only in Christ. Solus Christus. And the number five, sole deo gloria. Meaning to the glory of God alone. It's only when all, all of the above are true that we can truly cry out as the redeemed in Revelation chapter 7 that salvation belongs to God. It belongs to God. It's all Him from beginning to end. Everything necessary for our salvation has been done already by God. We simply receive it as a gift. And even the receiving is made possible by Him. And that means that He gets all the glory. Anything less ought to be a source of shame to us. Now, now why are these five solas important today? Why are they even relevant today? Can't we just say, well, this is, you know, church history. Try to blow off the dust, maybe? I'll tell you why. Because by nature, we are glory-seeking creatures. We just are. Some of us, more naturally wired, our temperament lends itself toward that more than others. But fundamentally, we are all glory-seeking creatures. If, if you and I were left to invent a religion of our own from scratch, we would always somehow smuggle into it some way of making it ultimately about us. I got this. I'll make a list. And as long as I can check all the boxes on the list, then I'll be good to go. We would invent a list of things necessary for us to do in order to be accepted by God. But when we do that, we, again, we put God in our debt. So if you check all the boxes, then you can go, here, God. And you go, well, look at that. You fulfilled all the requirements. I owe you one. I owe you salvation. What kind of God 
would do that, that would be ob- obliged or obligated to do whatever his creatures obliged him to do. So the five solas remind us of what Scripture teaches, that God is truly God and that all the glory for everything goes to him. Goes to him. So that's, that's kind of an intro to the series, the five solas. Let's look specifically this morning at the first one, sola Scriptura. Now, we were just recently in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in our previous series, the imperfect, Our Imperfect Family, when we talked about truth, about building our families on the foundation of the truth. We're going to look at it in a little different context today, hopefully give you a little uh, more clear understanding of what Paul is writing to uh, the younger Timothy here. And so let's take a look at verses. Actually, what I want us to do is I want to pick it up in verse number 10. It won't be on the screen. But I want to pick it up in verse number 10 of chapter 3. And then we're going to read down through the end of this third chapter. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. It says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. All that sounds great. But then in verse 11, he says, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured... Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Then we pick it up in verse number 14. But as for you, Timothy, remember this is Paul writing to the younger Timothy, his young protege in the faith, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with, notice what it says, with the sacred writings, sola scriptura, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is a text that we commonly turn to when we want to see kind of a full-bodied teaching on the doctrine of Scripture itself, on the Word of God. And to you kids here today, maybe if you're drawing there today or you're trying to take some notes, uh, here's a big truth for you to write down. The Bible is God's Word. The Bible is God's Word. You might draw a picture of a Bible there on on one of your sheets, and you can put on it God's Word. The Bible is God's Word, meaning it is not just a good book, meaning it's not just good literature. And sometimes you maybe will hear people refer to the Bible as the good book. They'll say the good book says or whatever. Um, Really, the Bible is much more than just a good book. Okay, In fact, Scripture, it's described as being alive. And powerful. It's living. Okay? And so it is God's very word to us. So sola scriptura. Scripture is the only and final authority for salvation and sanctification of the Christian. The scriptures are our ultimate trustworthy authority for faith and practice. Now that doesn't mean, again, that the Bible is the only place where truth can be found. But it does mean that everything else we learn about God and his world and all other authorities should be interpreted in the light of Scripture. You will sometimes hear us refer to a biblical worldview. 
Meaning that as followers of Jesus Christ, we should view everything in this world around us through the lens of Scripture. Whether it's your politics or your, your finances, whatever it may be, you view those things through the lens of Scripture. God's eternal word. Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 8 says this, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. We're talking about God's eternal word. And John Calvin said this, The difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church is they locate the authority of the church outside of God's word. That is outside of Scripture and Scripture alone. But we insist that it be attached to the word of God and not allow it to be separated from it. So again, I would say this as I do often. You ever come to church and Pastor Mike sets aside his Bible and says, I just want to talk to you about what I think this morning. I just want to share some firmly held um, you know, opinions of mine. That should, that should, that should be a, a red flag warning to you. Something's, something's wrong. Okay, We gather here today not for you to hear Pastor Mike's opinion on things. Now, I can share my opinions with you on some things. But we gather together around the Word of God because it's authoritative. And I would hope and pray that, that, that God, by His Holy Spirit, is developing within each of us a Berean spirit where we search the Scriptures to make certain that these things are true. Don't you dare find yourself out there going, well, Pastor Mike said it, so that's good enough for me. You, you better do some fact-checking. Do some fact-checking because God's Word is authoritative for us. Sola Scriptura. So I want us to look at some key uh, truths related to the Word of God and why it holds such a place of prominence and really preeminence in our lives. Number one, it describes for us the way of salvation. The way of salvation. The, the word scriptures that Paul uses here, the, the sacred writings, the scriptures, the, the whole concept, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's a word that's used some 51 times in the original languages of, of the Bible. The, the really, the, the word there is writings. The, the writings, it, it means that which is written down. So the scriptures refer to the books of the Bible which have been written down so that we might know about God and sin and salvation. So what you're saying is they are completely sufficient, containing everything that is necessary that we need to know for salvation and eternal life. They reveal how we can be forgiven of our sins through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Well, that means just reading the Bible as literature does not make someone a Christian. You could go to the most secular universities in our country. And there will likely be in some classes, whether it's in the philosophy department or in the literature department or whatever, there will be classes who are studying the Bible as a work of literature. Not a bad idea. Nothing wrong with that. Certainly it is good literature from that perspective. But that alone does not make someone a Christian. A person has to believe that Christ died for our sins. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 5, Jesus told the religious leaders of his day, you diligently study, and he would have been referring to the Old Testament scriptures, you study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. And then he, then he says this, this is, this is huge. He says, these scriptures testify about 
me. About me. And so as you study those Old Testament scriptures, what are they pointing to? It's why we sometimes say what appears to be concealed in the Old Testament is what? It's revealed in the New Testament. Never forget a number of years ago, uh, a farmer visited a church that I was pastoring in South Texas. And uh, he came to me after the service and he said, what is this whole talk about the Lamb of God? We sang a song today about the Lamb of God. I thought, what a great opportunity to explain the gospel to a farmer who would, I think, understand this. And so I went back and explained to him the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and how Christ himself was the Lamb of God. What did John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There would have been a clear understanding of what that meant to those listeners in that audience. So it all points to to Christ. That's why we say we strive to be biblically-based, Christ-centered. Why? Because we believe that Christ is the central figure of Scripture. Here's a newsflash for some of us. The Bible is fundamentally not a book about us. Certainly it applies to us, but it is a book about God. And, And predominantly a book about God come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I do say it this way many times, and it it, it sparks some conversation. I will say this. The Bible is fundamentally a book about people who have a problem with God. And the problem is sin. (laughs) The problem is sin. But that's not the end of the story. Because the story is that, that God, in his great love and mercy and grace, became flesh for us, died in our place, so that that sin problem could be remedied. And we can walk in freedom that is found only in Jesus Christ. So scripture points us to Christ. Christ is the one who saves us. Salvation does not come by a book, but through a person, the person of Jesus Christ. The scriptures were written that we may know Christ, that we may know Christ. A.W. Tozer said it this way, the Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God that they may enter into him and they may delight in the presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself is the core and center of their hearts. It's about knowing him. About knowing him. Here's a second truth that we need to understand from Paul's writing here to Timothy and that this book is divinely inspired. Not to be confused with just inspiring literature. Because let's face it, there are some parts of Scripture that may not be as inspiring as others, right? If you've ever tried to do a walk through Scripture, read through the Bible in a year's time, you do pretty good through Genesis and Exodus, and then you get to this book called Leviticus, and you're like, what in the world is this? And suddenly you don't find yourself quite so inspired, right? Well, it's, it's all inspired. It's all breathed out by God. And that's the language that Paul uses here. And you'll see that in the 16th verse. Breathed out. Divinely breathed. Our English word inspiration comes from the Latin word which means to be controlled, to be dominated, or to be filled. Webster's Dictionary defines it this way. It's the divine influence by which the sacred writers were instructed. Something conveyed to the mind. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 21 says, Scripture, it says, Never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle book. 
carried along, comes from a ship being moved by the wind as it fills its sails. It moves according to the direction of the wind. And so if your concept of Scripture and how it came to be is that some religious guys uh, started kind of writing their thoughts down, and it looked pretty good, and so God goes, well, let me check that out. All right, I'll approve it. Stamps his, uh, that, that, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what, that's not what biblical inspiration is about. It's not even suggesting that these people were somehow inspired in the same way that an artist might be inspired to paint a sunset. No, we're talking about a book that is God breathed. It's a miracle book. There's a guy named Benjamin Warfield who was president of Princeton Seminary. Uh, it's rarely known as Princeton Seminary anymore, from 1886 to 1902, I believe it was. And during that time, his primary focus was on the authority of the Bible. He wrote, Inspiration is the extraordinary supernatural influence exerted by the Holy Spirit on the writers of Scripture, by which their words were rendered the words of God and therefore perfectly infallible. So the miracle is that God can use 40-some human authors. He uses their giftedness. He uses even their personalities. He uses who they are as individuals to miraculously convey his words, his thoughts to us in a divinely inspired text. That's why it's not just good literature, not just a good book. That's why we can trust that whatever the Bible says is true. You can trust the Bible because it is the very Word of God Himself. The Word of God written down so that we might come to trust Jesus Christ as the only one who can forgive us of our sin. And then I want you to notice in verses 16 and 17 that it teaches right belief and behavior. We would describe this as walking with God. There are certain characters in Scripture who are described as walking with God. Enoch was one of those. Noah was described as having walked with God. Well, what does that mean, practically speaking? Well, Paul uses the language here, profitability. It's profitable for us. It's profitable for us. In other words, it's useful to us. It has value for us. They have value. The Scriptures have value because God gave them to us for the purpose of teaching us truth about God and correcting bad belief and bad behavior. Let's think about this in the context of parenting for a moment. We just finished a, a, a parenting family series, and, and those of you who are parents, especially if you still have younger kids at home right now, you're trying to strike that delicate balance uh, of, of, of correcting, which sometimes you feel like that's all you do, right? You have those periods where you feel like, all I do is say, no, don't, stop, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. You know, it's, it's all negative. It's always correcting bad behavior. We well, want to balance that with enforcing and teaching good behavior, right? Well, that's what we find in Scripture. And that's kind of the language that Paul is using here as he writes to Timothy. Teaching truth is profitable for doctrine. Teaching truth, that's right belief. Doctrine reveals the truth that we need to believe about God. It also reveals the truth about our own sinful nature. We need to know the truth if we're going to get to know God. We know this. Satan's deceptive. Deception is his native language. 
Satan is deceptive. We would have you believe a lie instead of the truth, just like he did with Eve in the Garden of Eden. And when he caused her to question what God had said, he will twist the truth and make you believe a lie and then lie to make it look like the truth. So God's word is intended to teach us truth, right belief. But at the same time, it rebukes error or wrong belief or wrong belief. Reproof shows us wrong beliefs that we need to change in our thinking. So it exposes what is false in our thoughts so we can change them. Jace addressed this last week in the closing message of our family series. He referred to the scripts that the world is constantly handing us, right? Scripts that say things like, oh, just follow your heart. Well, when I check that script with scripture, the Bible says that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? So when I put that script up against Scripture, I would go, just following my heart is probably a bad idea fundamentally. Probably not a good plan. So the Word of God corrects wrong belief. And we're constantly being handed these false scripts from the world. Worldly values, worldly priorities, all of these things. You'll be happy if you just get more stuff. What does Scripture say? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say you're going to find happiness in accumulating more stuff, does it? No. It says we are to instead lay up treasures in heaven that moth and rust can't destroy. It's a different script. It corrects wrong belief, rebukes error. It also corrects false or wrong behavior. Not just wrong belief, but wrong behavior. Reveals the changes that we need to make in our behavior. And it includes the idea of restoring something back to what it was. It is restoring us back to where we should be after having sinned. Understand this. Confession and repentance is first fundamentally saying the same thing about our sin that God says. That's what the word in the original language means. It's the word homologeo. It means to say the same thing about our sin that God says. But it's not just feeling sorry for our sin. It is turning and repenting and going the other direction. That's what God's word does for us. It's not intended to just make us feel guilty. No, it's, it's to show us how we can go a different direction. It helps correct wrong behavior. And so we would say, well, like, what, kind of, what practice do I need to change? Am I prone to anger? Am I prone to, to fits of anger? Am I lashing out at others? Do I have wrong attitudes? Is my speech, is it reflective of, of, of godly values? So God's word convicts us. That's why many times we're reluctant to go to the word of God. What we want to do many times is we want to just kind of pick and choose. And we view the Word of God much like we would a buffet. Now, those of you who are younger and don't remember the days when we would go to cafeterias, okay, uh, I guess the most modern uh, iteration of that would be like Golden Corral, right? Uh, And in a COVID age, that seems incredibly irresponsible and gross, right? Although the chocolate fountain is pretty amazing, I got to say. but now what you would do if you went to a cafeteria is you would walk through the line and you would just pick and choose what you want. And if you came across the collard greens or green beans or Brussels sprouts, or whatever, you go like, I don't want that. I want this. I want that. That's what many people want to do with the Bible. And I go, well, I really like Proverbs because those are just like pithy little sayings that I can cross stitch and hang on my wall. And that's amazing. But there's some other parts, eh, not so much, right? 
So I'll have some of this and some of that, but not that. that that's not how we're to view the Word of God. It, 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 scripture is described as everything that we need for life and godliness. So it corrects wrong behavior, corrects wrong belief as we get to know God. And then it trains us in righteousness. So it doesn't just establish for us right thinking or right belief. It establishes for us what that right belief does in terms of our behavior. Carries the idea of that that behavior comes through discipline needed to, to change fundamentally who we are. So when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about the process by which we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And the source of all of that is the Word of God. What is it that I need to do differently? It shows us how we need to live our lives to honor God, giving us principles in order to live holy lives. And then finally... I want us to see that it's the Word of God that guides us into spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. If you were to walk through our garage, into our laundry room, and ultimately into our house, uh, you would maybe notice on, the, on the, the door frame there, going into our laundry room, uh, a little growth chart. We started that growth chart in 2014 when we moved to Van Alstine, Texas. And we had Addie, our 11-year-old, stand up there against the doorframe, and we marked how tall she was at that time. And we've done that pretty much every year since then. And so we can see how much she's grown in the last seven, going on eight years now. And it's pretty amazing to see that. And, and you've all done growth charts and things of that nature. That's great. You take your kids to the doctor for regular visits, and they, they weigh them, and they, they, they check their height and all those things to make sure that they're growing, right? You know, the sad thing is we many times give attention to physical growth, and as important as that is, some of us are growing maybe in ways that we're not supposed to now, but, but the truth is there are a lot of people who are professing believers in Jesus Christ, but you're still hanging out in the nursery spiritually, you would say, oh, I've been a part of a church for years. I was a member of this church for years. I was baptized back in whatever year. I made a profession of faith at Vacation Bible School. But you've really grown very little. Because you've never, you've never prioritized the Word of God. When Christy and I first started dating, and most of you know our story, many of you do, uh, we had known each other already. I had known Christy's family. We first met when I was 14 and she was 10, Okay. But again, calm down. I was not a freshman in high school checking out a 10-year-old, okay? She, she was my sister's friend at that time, right? So I knew her in, in a little different way. But as we both got older, suddenly that four-year difference wasn't that big of a deal. And so I'm thinking, man, she's grown up, right? And I had a desire to get to know her more intimately than I ever had before, and so in the early days of, of us dating and everything, I, I wanted to know what she liked, what she didn't like, what she loved, what maybe she didn't so much. And so I, I constantly, we constantly wanted to be in conversation with one another. That's how the Word of God is to be to us. If you really want to know God, you've got to get into His Word. Sola Scriptura. This is how He reveals Himself to us, through His Word and by His Holy Spirit. Some of you might remember a number of years ago, there was an 
ad campaign on TV that encouraged uh, kids to read particularly. And it said, the more you read, the more you know, right? Yeah. If you want to become knowledgeable on different subjects, you need to be a reader. The more you read, the more you know. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. The more you read and the more you memorize and the more you internalize and the more you meditate on this book, the better you will know the God of this book. It can't just be something that sits on your shelf. It's got to be a part of your life. Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. Let's go back to Martin Luther for just a moment as we close today. Martin Luther was growing in popularity through this particular period of church history, so much so that Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire at that time, agreed to hear his arguments at a meeting of the entire parliament. The Catholic Church, of course, wanted him arrested and condemned to death as a, as a heretic without a trial. Well, on April the 17th, 1521, Luther arrived at parliament. It was a dramatic contrast. You can just imagine. Here is Luther, this simple Augustinian monk, standing before the sovereign of the Holy Roman Empire. When he was confronted with this pile of books, his pile of books, his writings, he quietly responded, the books are all mine. And they called upon him in that moment to recant everything that he had written. Well, that wasn't what he was expecting. Luther was shocked because he had been promised an actual hearing on his beliefs, not a demand to recant what he had written. And so he replied, this touches God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls. To say too little or too much would be dangerous. I beg you, give me time to think it over. And after some deliberation, even though they felt he didn't deserve it, Luther was granted a one-day delay. He naturally spent that evening in prayer, in anguish, carefully preparing his response. And at 6 p.m. the following day, he gave his famous answer. If you've studied this period of church history at all, you've likely heard what he said there. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I trust neither Pope nor Council alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have cited. I am bound by the Scriptures I have cited. Sola Scriptura. I cannot, and I will not, for my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, and I will not recant anything, since to act against one's conscience is neither safe nor right. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand, he said. May God help me. Amen. What was he saying? He was standing on the word of God. Sola Scriptura. And his famous words there before Parliament reverberated throughout the Reformation, inspiring many others to take their stand as well. Sola Scriptura became the foundation of what we know now as the Protestant Reformation. Their faith was based on Scripture and not church tradition. And what you may not know is that Luther translated the Bible into everyday German language so that people could read the Bible and discover God's truth themselves. 
I think sometimes we forget or take for granted what we have in this book. And it's not just good literature. It is the very word of God. Breathed out by God. So you can trust it. You better prioritize it. A lot of people who are content to, to give it a place of, uh, of maybe prominence. But God intends for us to give it a place of preeminence in our lives. And so may it guide us into a better knowledge of who God is and what he has done on our behalf as he came even in the flesh to die in our place. Would you join me in prayer? Father, oh, we thank you. We thank you that uh, we have the ability to study history even, to come to a better understanding of where we are even now. Lord, we thank you for those who down through the centuries have taken a firm stand on the word of God, on the truths of scripture, and even as these Five simple statements, these five solas, capture for us biblical divine truth. Help us, O Lord, to be bound to Scripture. Lord, if there's anyone here today that has never found the freedom that is ours in Christ, they've never been made alive by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's my prayer that by your Holy Spirit and the power of your word, they be drawn to you today. Lord, for each of us, as we attempt in our failures and our flaws and our imperfections to walk with you, to know you better, to serve you faithfully, Lord, help us to be tethered to your word. That it be our ultimate authority. Lord, we thank you. That throughout history, there have been those who've tried to stamp it out. Those who've tried to destroy it. Those who've suggested that the word of God wouldn't in fact stand forever. We still cling to your word today. Based upon your promise. That while the grass withers and the flower fades, your word will stand forever. Help us, Lord, to be people of your word. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you now. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.